You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back to National Security Law Today, the official podcast for the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm here with my co-hostess with the mostest, Lisa. Well, hello, madam. It is good to see you again. Pretty in pink as you are when it is heat index 100 degrees here in Washington, D.C., where it is terrible. I am very excited because we have a super fun person who I also know to be a prince of a guy on today. So I'm jazzed about that. I'm very excited about it, too. You and I are both moms to middle schoolers. So I know you've rushed up on your Greek mythology as I have, and it'll come in handy for today's podcast in which we'll discuss what centaur should be thinking when they think about artificial intelligence. Yes. Well, you know, I had to ask my 11-year-old to go back over what a centaur even was with me, and he became irritated because he he wants to supply an enormous number of details. But I am intrigued, and we're here uh, with Judge Jamie Baker, the author of The Centaur's Dilemma, National Security Law for the Coming AI Revolution. Welcome back, Judge Baker. Oh, thank you very much. I was worried for a moment that I was invited back because you thought I'd best fit in with a group of middle schoolers, <laughs> which may, may, be in, may in fact be true, but hopefully we can talk about artificial intelligence along the way. So thank you very much for having me back. Well, I think you would thrive with a bunch of middle schoolers and you've had middle schoolers, I believe. So uh, you would probably know exactly what to say where the rest of us are just sort of figuring out as we go. But many in our audience probably know that Judge Baker is one of the national security laws, really nationally recognized experts. He is currently a professor at the Syracuse College of Law, as well as the director of the Institute for Security Policy and Law. He served as the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces for 15 years and the last four as chief judge. And in his long and storied career, he's held positions on the Hill at State what? State L. Yeah, in the State L. office, yeah. Excellent. All right. And the National Security Council and a number of advisory boards. And nearest and dearest to our hearts is the fact that he served for many years as the chair of our own ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. So Judge Baker, like my husband, began his professional career as a Marine, Semper Fi, and holds an undergraduate as well as a law degree from Yale. Yvette won't hold that against him. I'll try not to. (laughs) Judge Baker has long supported our cast. We last heard from him on episode 167 in his fascinating conversation on AI and ethics with Corn Stone. We'll link to that podcast. But for this conversation, we're going to go broader this time. The Centaur's Dilemma, his new book, includes a discussion of ethics, but it's more of an all-encompassing guide to policymakers about what questions they should be considering and answering as this technology emerges. I would say as well, this book means a lot to me personally as a former member of the intended audience. I showed up to work one day at the Pentagon when I was working in OSD policy. And my boss said, my colleague who worked on the law's portfolio had moved on to a different team and would I like to run it, please? So I was voluntold to be in charge of this particular area of making policy. And it was really daunting at first. And I, I gotta say, Judge Baker, I wish I'd had this book as a resource. Uh, the fire hose would have felt a little bit more like a garden hose, I think, in my initial months, kind of staggering around and getting a feel for it. So I'd love to really jump right in and start educating the laws, technicians, and other AI 
policymakers who are either budding or aspiring or in the seats right now on making these kinds of decisions and let them know about this amazing resource that is available right now. Why did you decide to write this and what were you trying to achieve? Thank you, Yvette. Well, I wrote the book for you. (laughs) And by that, I mean, I wrote the book for the national security legal field and national security policy audience, because I realized there was nothing out there. But let me tell you a bit about its derivation, uh, which has its roots with the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And I'll give you both my tactical answer to your question and my strategic answer. The tactical answer is that I invited Jason Matheny, the wonderful former director of the of IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity, and he was now a deputy director of the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. Among other things, he holds 73 titles at the White House right now, uh, as he should. But I invited him to come speak to the National Security Law Standing Committee at one of our breakfasts on the topic of emerging technologies. And he gave, as he usually does, a wonderfully interesting and brilliant talk. But at the end of the talk, he hadn't given us any deliverables. And I said to him, Jason, you're in a room full of lawyers, national security lawyers from throughout the government. What is it you would like us to do? He said, what I really need is for someone to look at artificial intelligence and how the law and ethics apply to artificial intelligence in the national security space. And I said, okay, well, I can help you find that person. Why don't I poll and see if we can find someone and get them to to work on this? Two weeks later, I get a call from Jason and he said, can I meet you for coffee? And I said, sure, of course. He said, I've got great news. I found the person I want to study AI and national security law. And I was like, that's awesome. I don't have to do that now. And so I meet him and we're having coffee, we're talking and nothing's happening. I'm like, this is sort of odd. And so finally I said, Jason, um, who did you find? And he said, I found you. You're going to do the study of artificial intelligence and national security law and ethics. As you know, I said to him, I said, Jason, I can't even spell AI. And he said, can you spell Wikipedia? And I said, uh, you know, whatever. I w- wouldn't, as a judge, I wouldn't admit that I'd ever been on Wikipedia, but um, <laughs> the... Uh, That's how I started looking at AI. Now, that's the tactical reason. That's the immediate cause. But the the real cause was, I think, one of our duties as members of the Standing Committee and one of our duties, in my case, of being a slightly older member of the national security law community, it's my duty to pass on to the next generation and the one after everything I can to help them meet the national security challenges of tomorrow. So what I do, and I do do this every day, I contemplate what is it national security lawyers will need to know five years from now, 10 years from now, and so on. And the topic I kept on coming up with was emerging technologies, and in particular, artificial intelligence and synthetic biology and its offshoots. When Jason asked me to do this, he was talking to someone who wanted to serve a greater good by helping the next generation out, by telling them what I thought it was they ought to know. And that's what this book is, right? This is an effort to write down in one place everything I think a national security law generalist and everything a national security law policy generalist 
ought to know about artificial intelligence so they can join the policy debate, the legal debate, the ethical debate about how we regulate this particular tool. You raise the issue of having looked at Wikipedia. I presume you do. So, of course, let's talk about what the definition is of AI, because, as you know, definitions matter in the law quite a bit. I hope that's an easy question. Consider that a softball. Underhand, right there. You've uh, got it. So yes and no. I hope by now I have a definition of artificial intelligence, right? It'd be awkward to write a book about something you haven't figured out what it's about. When I started, I found that everybody has a different definition of artificial intelligence. And one reason it's hard to contemplate how we approach this topic and regulate it, some of the time when people are talking about it, they're talking about very different things. If you're talking to Nick Bostrom, you're talking about one thing. If you're talking about to Bob work, you're talking about another thing and so on. The definition I came upon that I'd like the most, which is not to say it captures all facets of artificial intelligence, but I found it to be the most useful, is the one that the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence used. AI is not a single piece of hardware or software, but rather a constellation of technologies they give a computer system the ability to solve problems and to perform tasks that would otherwise require human intelligence. So here's a couple of things I like about that definition. It tells us it's a constellation of technologies. It's a lot of different things uh, and not just one thing. So when we seek to regulate or use AI more thoughtfully, we need to be addressing that constellation of technologies and not just software, not just algorithms, not just data, uh, not just comp computational power, all of the above. I also like the fact that the definition doesn't say AI is human intelligence. It says that it is the capacity to perform tasks and solve problems that would otherwise require human intelligence. So the AI is doing it in a manner different than humans, although we try to, many of the uh, AI metaphors seek to capture notions of how brains work and things like that with neural networks, but computers are doing something different than human brains when they are doing things that would otherwise require human intelligence. And so that's one of the things I like about the definition as well. I think we should probably leave it there for the moment. Um, at least we know what we think we're talking about uh, together. But artificial intelligence is a constellation of technologies. So I think here's also a place where I should throw out a couple more terms of art that are commonly used um, and have different definitions, but there's some core aspects of everybody's definitions. When we talk about artificial intelligence today, generally people are talking about what is known as narrow artificial intelligence, which is a computer system that is trained or able to perform a singular task at optimal or near optimal capacities. Nick Bostrom famously presented the world with the so-called paperclip optimizer. And the idea behind the paperclip optimizer was that it was really good at making paperclips, right? A singular task. Now he uses the paperclip optimizer to go down and explain a potential existential threat from AI that we'll get to in a moment. That's an example of narrow AI in, at the moment, which is it can perform a singular task. 
AI that helps drive a driverless vehicle is good at driverless vehicles, but isn't great at breaking codes or doing shopping algorithms, right? So the next category of artificial intelligence is known as artificial general intelligence or AGI. And this is a notional moment in time when AI is capable of performing multiple tasks, not just one task, and moving fluidly from one task to another, rewriting its code, doing things to become better at what it's doing. One of the questions here is, does that mean better than humans, better than humans in all categories, or, or just fluid and being able to move from point to point? And then there's a third category of artificial intelligence that some people talk about and some people don't. This tends to be the science fiction folks tend to focus on this, as do the AI philosophers, in which category one might put Nick Bostrom or James Barrett, or I dare I say Elon Musk or uh, Stephen Hawking, and that is this notion of superintelligence. And this is a notional moment in time when artificial intelligence in, in the machines that the AI informs and empowers are smarter than humans and more capable than humans. And this is when you get into the uh, existential threat debate. As you know, if and I know you've actually read the book, thank you for being that person. My comment about superintelligence, which is interesting, it's an interesting topic, which is there's so many opportunities we have to do ourselves in first. I would spend, as a national security specialist, I would spend less time worrying about Ray Kurzweil and singularity and superintelligence and that sort of thing, because we got enough problems without that. We, you know, we, 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 have, we have the opportunity to do a lot of harm or a lot of good long before we get to that. By the way, though, speaking of long before we get to that, one of the questions afoot is how long before we get to artificial general intelligence? Uh, will we get there and how long? A group of different organizations a couple of years ago did a poll. And in the book, I explained how they did the poll and that kind of thing. So it will stipulate for our conversation that it was a statistical, meaningful, meaningfully conducted poll of computer scientists and specialists from around the world. And the question put to them was, will we get to artificial general intelligence and when? Interestingly, the American respondents estimated that we get there in about 75 years. I'm, it's either 74 or 76 years. I can't remember the exact number, so I came up with 75. And the Chinese respondents came in around 25 years. That may or may not mean anything. It may just reflect a uh, optimism. Uh, it may reflect that they know something we don't know. But it's interesting that in the field, uh, there's uh, folks who think we will get to artificial general intelligence. There's folks who think we will not. And then there's a range of views about how soon. Uh, as national security specialists, lawyers who believe in law and, and people who believe in ethics, uh, we don't have the luxury of sitting around and figuring out whether we're going to get there in 75 years or tomorrow. We got to act like we're going to get there tomorrow and get there first. Let's um let's dig in a little bit more deeply because that's what this book does, right? The first part of the book really sets up the problem set, right? And and goes into great detail about some of the challenges that AI 
policymakers, technicians, and everybody kind of encounters. Um, can you just kind of talk about some of these applications specifically? I mean, it was really exciting reading these passages about the different things that AI can be used for, not just, you know, suggestions in what more I should be watching on YouTube or what more <laughs> stuff I should be buying off of Amazon. Like what are some of the, the trans like there over and over, you hear this very, you know, this very exciting language about how this is going to be as transformational as aerospace or as airplanes or the telephone. Can you just talk about some of the things that people are, are conjuring up? I like how you frame the question, because I think there's a tendency, not necessarily in the academic space, to go in one direction or the other, right? AI presents great benefits or AI presents great risks. You know, Stephen Hawking uh, said, it may be the best thing to ever happen to humanity or maybe the worst. Uh, I call that the fork in the road club. It could go either way. But the, the reality is uh, AI uh, has both risks and benefits. First, what are some of the risks? There are a couple. I've categorized them. So one of the things I try to do in the book is package material so that it's understandable to generalists and manageable. I break the risks down into a number of categories. One is the category of unintended consequences and technology interface. And here we're talking about a number of different things, but one is the technology does not work as intended. One is the technology works as intended, but the humans who are using it, relying on it, or interacting with it, don't understand what it is that, that they're, they're receiving. Uh, that's your Vincennes-type scenario. And then another risk is human-machine interface and handoff. And this might be illustrated, for example, with the difficulty the pilots had in having the new Boeing Supermax MCAS system hand off the aircraft to them without them being able to control the aircraft at that moment. So, and, and I think, as you know, I, in the category of technology not working as intended, um, I describe two incidents in the book. One is the uh, very famous incident involving uh, Lieutenant Colonel Petrov. And as you may know or may not know, in the AI field, especially in the AI philosophy field, the Petrov incident is talked about all the time. And he is the Soviet uh, rocket force early warning officer who was on duty in 1983 when the Soviet nuclear alert system indicated there had been a launch of an American first strike. Petrov famously, as we now know, did not think it looked like what an American first strike would look like and he sat on it. And of course, in the Soviet system, in any military command system, but in the Soviet system in particular, uh, that was not the normative model, right? When you had information, you pass it up, you didn't sit on it, and he sat on it. He said, this is not what I think the radar is indicating. I think we can probably guess what the outcome was because we're here talking. It was, of course, an error in the Soviet radar system. It had not worked as intended. If you ask the AI folks, AI philosophers, who Petrov is, they'll say he's the man who saved the world. Lest we say, well, that's Soviet technology. A very similar incident occurred in 1979 when National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski was woken up by his military assistant, Bill Odom, who many of you will know from his NSA director days. 
and he was providing National Security Advisor Brzezinski the short window warning that there was a Soviet nuclear strike en route to the United States. And Brzezinski, realizing that he and everybody else would soon be dead, responded with great calm and said, verify that first. And Bill Odom, in fact, went back into the warning system twice to verify. And it was on the second verify verification run that it turned out that it had been, the warning had come in error. So the president had never been woken up and they hadn't gone through the responsive motions that they would in the short time period permitted. There is some debate about what exactly was the source of the error, whether it was technical in nature or was it, whether it was the product of a training tape being erroneously inserted uh, into the early warning system for training purposes. And one of the things that is interesting about that scenario is the training tape managed to make it on to two systems Thus, the system that was supposed to confirm the other system had also been tainted and confirmed the taint. So the message here is that technology doesn't always work as intended. I think we already know that because we all use shopping algorithms or have them used upon us, and they're not always correct, are they? Uh, that's a risk. I don't want to say risk number one, because risk number one is whatever the risk is you're dealing with at that time. Uh, there's foreign relations risk. When I say foreign relations risk, I mean the impact of AI on creating situations of stability and instability. And of course, one of the ones that is talked about is the impact of AI on the employment picture and whether that will lead to uh, mass unemployment in certain contexts and locations, or whether in some manner AI will lead to a new generation of jobs rather than the supplanting of jobs with machines. One of the foreign relations risks, of course, is, is the risk of an arms race. I might note here, and I, and I think it's quite correct, Jack Shanahan, who, as you know, is the first director of the Jake, shamelessly going to note blurb my book, doesn't like the use of the term arms race because, as he points out, AI is not an arm. It's a constellation of technologies. It's a little bit like you know, electricity or something that empowers something, but it can find its way into a lethal autonomous weapon system or it can find its way into a shopping algorithm uh, and so on. So when we say arms race, we say arms race in quotes, and we really are talking about a technology race and the risks that come with technology races, including those in the national security field such as shortcuts being taken or uh, security shortcuts being taken. When you're racing along, you might not do all the safety checks you might ordinarily do if you think you're competing with someone else to get there first. Interestingly, the first American satellite to be launched after Sputnik blew up on the launch pad. We weren't quite ready or where we ought to have been at that time. As you know, from your work in the laws area, there is the thought that autonomous uh, AI in some manner will increase the likelihood of conflict. I think this could cut both ways. The thought here is that if you can somehow fight wars with AI-empowered weapons and robots and all this stuff, uh, and, and therefore not put humans at risk, uh, those with are more likely to use warfare as a tool, and you know those without are more likely to be recipients 
I think that's pretty simple, too simple. It's more complicated than that. One of the things I point out in the book is that AI make kinetic weapons more powerful, can make cyber weapons more powerful, and uh, with swarm technology and other things, what that might also do is make them more lethal and mean that many more people are killed more rapidly and right away uh, in any serious conflict. That would be a deterrent, I think, if you knew you were going to lose uh, five carriers and 100,000 people in the first 15 minutes of conflict. So the, I, I would, my, my point here is to avoid simplified answers and simplified bullets. At the end of each chapter, I might note, I have takeaways for policymakers and lawyers. Uh, so what are you supposed to do with this information? Well, here are some handy takeaways. Go work on this policy issue. And then uh, just to, to, to finish the happy set of risks, we have the uh, decision-making pathologies. Um, and this is the risk that comes by operating at machine speed. Uh, AI is both brittle, but also very nimble. And it can allow you to operate at machine speed, which is to say instantaneously. And that causes particular risk about automatically escalating a situation as might happen in cyberspace and moving too quickly for humans to effectively control outcomes. And I'll skip the existential threat you have to ask me about that if you want, but I think we have enough risk ahead without that uh, that we need to address first. Benefits, let's not forget the benefits, and these aren't just the benefits that we might encounter with an Amazon shopping algorithm or our next Google search. Uh, two areas, of course, are in the area of uh, medical diagnosis and treatment and vehicles, driverless vehicles. Whatever your view about driverless vehicles might be, one thing driverless vehicles can do if we get to a place where they are safe, functional, and so on, is they can be run in a very environmental way. If you care about climate change, uh, you might want to read up on how autonomous vehicles can lead to uh, better use of traffic, better use of transport, more fuel efficiency, and so on, things like that. It's not, uh, don't just think of driverless vehicles uh, as I can read a book while driving. It might have enormous societal impact, many of it, much of it beneficial, if it works as intended. Medical, I use an example in the book of how we all know these stories already. We read them in the newspaper and the media and so on that, that certain AI algorithms are better than humans at detecting uh, certain kinds of tumors. The example I found that was quite useful that I used in the book was I, I used the example of uh, diabetic retinopathy, which is a form of blindness. And in India, turns out there's uh, 70 million people or so who are diabetic. And that means 70 million people who are uh, potentially at risk of going blind. Uh, it turns out there are not as many ophthalmologists in India as there are people who are at risk. There are about 11 ophthalmologists for every 1 million people. Diabetic retinopathy is something that is easily treated if identified before it uh, has onset, uh, before you go blind. 
easily identified as something that needs to be treated based on the pattern in the back of the eye. But it turns out that AI is perfectly suited. This is exactly what it, it is good at in many cases, pattern recognition, identification, breaking down images into finite pieces in ways that humans cannot do and doing it instantaneously and then comparing those images to databases instantaneously to say, what does this picture look like? It, does it look like a tumor or, or uh, potential blindness or does it look like something else like a healthy eye? What you can then do is screen those, the 70 million people to decide which should get in to actually see the ophthalmologist. So the AI is not saying, okay, you know, you got it or you don't got it. The AI is helping figure out who should be prioritized to get in to see the ophthalmologist. That's a great example of human machine teaming and why DOD uses the Centaur as its description of human machine teaming, because each scenario compels you, in my view, to ask the question, with this particular application, how much of the action and decision and the activity should be human? How much should be machine? How do you make the machine team work best in this context? The Centaur's dilemma is, how do you do that? And how do you do that at machine speed? And one of the dilemmas is if you have too much human input, especially in the national security area, you lose some of the advantage of AI because you're not operating at machine speed. So for example, if you're in a machine against machine cyber contest and you stop every time to have a human make a decision, you're gonna lose the benefit of having an AI enabled system that can fight machine to machine in instantaneous manner. So that's a dilemma. How do you assert human control while at the same time maximizing the benefit of the AI application? I, uh, you know, I'm sort of uh, picturing like an Armageddon scene here with droids on droid warfare and the like, you know, missiles flying across the globe. So thank you for that, um, that bit of sunshine there, Jamie. <laughs> Uh, middle schoolers, so my children are past the middle school uh, age. We had rules in my house about how much of the AI discussion I could bring to the dinner table because the AI benefits are in fact quite cheery and up uplifting, uh, but some of the AI risks can lead you down uh, the rabbit hole of despair. And that's where we come in. We come in as lawyers and policymakers and we maximize the benefits and mitigate the risks. But best done, not done at the dinner table with your middle schoolers as you discuss existential risk. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.